You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. My name is Dharmendra Kanani. I'm Director of Strategy at Friends of Europe and your moderator for this evening's um, Café Crossfire on financing a low-carbon economy. Um, we have an illustrious panel of speakers um, gathered here this evening, and I'm hoping that in the next hour or so we're able to engage you in earnest in um, being able to connect up the dots of the system around financing a low-carbon economy, debate the key issues around that particular agenda, and also think about the kind of change we might need to make in relation to moving uh, and in earnest um, and with um, pace, uh, given the urgency of climate change. This is not an event about trying to convince ourselves about the importance of climate change at all. That's that's a given. We know that fundamentally um, we've achieved huge gains um, globally in terms of a commitment to move in the direction towards uh, reducing uh, carbon and moving towards uh, a much more positive, assertive agenda on climate change. But what we do know is in the past 12 months, politics is such that this is one issue that could easily be lost sight of and be sidelined both domestically and internationally. Um, what we also know fundamentally that um, climate change is fundamentally about supply and demand. It's uh, wrapped up in the politics um, of, of, of money um, and also political commitment. And what we're here today to debate and discuss is how do we kind of achieve uh, and move towards in, in the transition towards, uh, towards a low-carbon economy um, by financing it. Money drives everything, as we know, uh, no more so in, than on this agenda. And actually, it's money that matters in terms of investment choices, in terms of um, a, a, a approaches to R&D, but also sustainability. That's where money matters. And so what we're going to have for you today is a variety of views on how do you uh, effectively sustain financing a low-carbon economy. I'm going to start uh, with a contribution um, uh, from Mark Lewis. Um, I'm not going to read out the bios. You've got the information and the background um, in the paperwork. Uh, I want to kind of speed directly to the five minutes that each speaker has and then open up to you uh, for a debate and conversation about the key issues. So I'm going to kick off with Mark first, who um, will say a little bit, uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, um, I know because of the work that he's been doing as a member of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, quite a mouthful, TCFD. Over to you. Yes. Um, thank you, Devendra, and uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. So actually, what I wanted to do was, just in the first five minutes, is, is to the title of this seminar, Financing a Low-Carbon Economy. I work uh, as a financial analyst. I work in a bank. I've worked in banks for sort of 20 years. Uh, but I cover the energy system. So I'm kind of uh, overlapping between the two, if you like. That's what I specialize in. And I suppose the question I really want to address is how do you make the financial system fit for purpose? How do you come up with a financial system that can help uh, well, do two things, really? Avoid the risks uh, that climate change brings about. That's one thing, and certainly the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure is mostly about avoiding uh, risk. But also, how do you make the financial system aware of the opportunities that are out there in the low-carbon economy? It's, it's, truly, um, it's truly amazing to see how quickly um, technology is now really developing in ways sometimes, I think, that are way ahead 
of uh, government and, pub and certainly public opinion. And I think that's a hugely important point. The finance industry uh, needs to catch up. But a good example of that, for, ex for, for example, uh, last week or two weeks ago, just before Easter, you will have seen for the first time ever, we've had subsidy-free uh, contract wins in big offshore wind uh, projects. Absolutely amazing and inconceivable even six months ago, I think. So this is moving at breakneck speed. And the question is, how do you make sure the financial system is uh, aligned uh, to that? And I, I think there's actually some quite positive things to say. So first of all, on the, on the risk side, um, as Devinder mentioned, I'm part of the task force on uh, climate-related financial disclosure. And, and really the purpose of that is to try and uh, make sure that uh, the financial system globally... Um, uh, avoids the uh, risks inherent, climate-related uh, financial risks that could uh, create financial instability. Now, just as a quick anecdote, uh, I spent one year working at a large German utility 12 years ago, and um, one of my jobs was to write the speeches for the CEO. This is a company that at its peak was worth 95 billion euros in January 2008. That's when it peaked in stock market terms. And I remember him saying to me back in 2005, here's the speech I want you to write for our investors uh, next month. And I said, well, hang on a minute. You haven't mentioned anything about renewable energy. This is 2005. And we're getting a lot of questions on renewable energy. And uh, investors want to know what our strategy is. Analysts want to know what our strategy is. And, and the gist of the reply was, don't worry about renewable energy. Uh, the subsidies that the German government has in place are politically unsustainable. We're not even sure the grid can uh, withstand the kind of amounts of renewable energy that uh, the German government's targets are. So we're just going to carry on building fossil fuel uh, power stations. Uh, here we are today, 12 years later, and... Um, Let's just say the value of that company has fallen extremely considerably in the intervening period. The point of the story being that uh, bad investment decisions were made by the entire power industry across Europe over the last 10 years simply because they did not keep up with the changing pace of technology. And equally importantly, they did not really believe the policy uh, framework that was being put in place by policymakers. And really, I think... What we've lived through in the last 10 years, which will now be a challenge for other industries, because the power industry has really finally got it and is investing very heavily now in renewables and energy efficiency and so forth. Some of the other industries out there, like the oil and gas industry, they need to wake up and see how quickly their industry might be transformed over the next decade by electric vehicles, for example, which, again, in the last two years are just making uh, enormous um, strides. And, and if you think of how much money has been invested and written off in the power industry alone in Europe over the last 10 years, I think uh, the most recent uh, analysis I saw of this, it's, it's approaching 150 billion euros of impairment charges just in the last five years. So the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures is really all about trying to get companies to be much more aware of the risks they face from uh, climate change, and those risks are physical. They are also relating to potential future litigation. I mean, we've seen that with the tobacco industry. We've seen that um, with uh, other industries. And um, finally, they're to do with what Mark Carney, when he set this uh, task force up, are called transition risks, how whole industries can be reshaped, reconfigured in a much shorter space of time than anyone would have thought possible even 10 years ago. I think if there's one lesson we've learned from the experience of the European utility industry over the last 10 years, it's that a deeply established industry, almost quasi-monopolistic, certainly oligopolistic, 
that for 70 years, 80 years, had earned very good returns simply did not think it was possible that, that its entire business model could be reshaped in such a short period. You can go back and look 10 years ago at industry reports, at analyst reports, dare I say it, credit rating agency reports. You will not find, you will not find any report that predicted the market value of the European utilities could fall by the amount that it has fallen. German utilities are worth 85% less today than they were at their peak in January 2008. So if it can happen to the utility industry, this is the point of the story, if it can happen to the utility industry, which is a, uh, traditionally a deeply defensive industry, it can happen to any industry. It can certainly happen to the oil and gas industry. But they don't, I don't think they have fully woken up to the challenge that they are facing. So um, what the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure is really doing is it's about standardizing best practice for reporting so that investors and other financial stakeholders, banks, uh, can make better informed choices about the risks that the business models of these industries that we've had around us for decades and that we've all thought would just continue, what are the risks they face and... and, and um, how do we get better information? Because financial markets ultimately work on the basis of information. And if you don't have good information, you can't make informed decisions. But it's not just uh, the industries directly at risk. It's investors themselves and it's the banks themselves. They have to be uh, giving better information. The organization I work for, uh, which, you know, being represented on the panel, came out with a strong endorsement of the, of the climate uh, task force work, you know, we have to give better information to our investors about the risks inherent in loan portfolios. This is really what uh, this is all about in terms of making the financial system uh, more fit for purpose for a sustainable uh, long-term future. So that's really the risk side of the equation. And just briefly on the opportunity uh, side of the equation, I think we hear so much... Uh, about um, the subsidies. You can, you can see this a lot in, in the mainstream political debates in, in all of the European countries. It's still stuck in this groove from five years ago that renewables are only there because of subsidies. Well, it's been the case for a number of years now, certainly three or four years, that onshore wind is the cheapest form of new generation in Europe. But offshore wind in the last two years, the cost of that has come down incredibly. The cost of solar, if you look at solar... Six years ago, the German government would have been paying you over 300 euros per megawatt hour to put a solar panel on your, on your roof. Today, we have competitive tenders in Germany where the price of uh, solar-generated electricity is less than 80 euros per megawatt hour. These are stunning numbers. And, you know, across the world, we're seeing uh, in the best locations solar power now being generated for less than $30 per megawatt hour. And this cost reduction will continue. So it's gearing up finance around that. And I think this is the good news and the positive point I want to finish on uh, for the time being. I think the fact that these large industrial groups uh, in the European wind industry are now able to uh, bid for large contracts. The largest contract we saw two weeks ago for this offshore wind tender was 900 megawatts of power, and the company that won it, EMBW, bid essentially on the basis of merchant price risk, saying that we'll build this project in 2025, it will be ready in 2025, uh, and we don't need a subsidy to build it, because we think that between now and 2025, the turbine sizes will get a lot bigger, the economies of scale will be greater, the technology itself uh, will improve, and um, who knows what their assumptions are 
regarding prices, but the, the basic point is they're betting more on falling costs than they are on rising uh, prices. I think it's a, tremendously, uh, a tremendous vote of confidence in uh, the potential of technology to change. And really, I think the best way to think about the revolution that we're living through here is that you have a, a virtuous feedback loop between policy, technology, and consumer and investor preference. In other words, as governments, so going back to my earlier example, 2005, companies disbelieving uh, the policy targets that were put in place by uh, European governments at the time. But that led to the deployment of a large amount of tech, uh, technology, which in turn brought the cost of that technology down, enabled the governments to set more ambitious targets, and you get into this virtuous loop. And then guess what? Consumers decide that they want... Uh, more renewable, more sustainable electricity. So you get consumer preference coming in. One of the most uh, interesting trends at the moment is the extent to which very large corporates are taking long-term PPAs of renewable uh, electricity. You know, so there's, it's not just retail consumers, it's corporate consumers. There's a whole uh, change there. So uh, lots of uh, virtuous uh, circles there driving, driving this revolution. And I, I think... Uh, you know, I'm optimistic about the way we can make the financial system more, uh, better aligned with uh, long-term sustainable okay. goals. Thank you, Mark. Um, those of you who've read the report will know that the, they set a kind of a timeline, a horizon of five years for action on this. And I think it would be interesting to come back to um, that horizon that you've set out and to understand actually our financial institutions both adopting and adapting to what's required. And I'm sure people will have that question because... The, the doability factor and the bureaucracy issue, I'm sure, are things that people will raise in institutions. But I'm going to move to the European Commission. Hugo, uh, Director of Financial Markets. What we do know is that we need something like £400 billion of investment from 2021 onwards. Huge task. People say it's conservative, but actually, we, given, given that that number doesn't take account of vehicles and transport, it actually should be much more. But over to you. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, and good afternoon. <clears throat> At the European Commission, I have uh, the privilege and the honor of being in charge of one of the top priorities of the Commission itself, which is the Capital Markets Union project. And uh, as you know, this was announced by President Juncker even before he appointed the, the, the Commissioner. So it's really something that uh, he believes in and we with him. And um, since the beginning, uh, we've delivered half of the first action plan, which was published in 2015. But now we are uh, elaborating, we're drafting uh, basically the second action plan, or uh, the CMU 2.0, or the second phase of the project, which will take the form of, the, of a midterm review, uh, which will be published in uh, June this year. And uh, you will see that many more initiatives will come and will be presented. In the framework of this project, sustainable finance is becoming one of the most prominent aspects of the project itself. It was announced for the first time uh, clearly in the communication of September 2016, accelerating the Capital Markets Union project, where we basically confirmed that notwithstanding the vote of, the, of June 23rd in the UK, we were continuing with that project, and uh, we were even more determined to pursue it. And um, we are now developing uh, a strategy which hopefully will bring tangible results and concrete proposals between now and the end of this year. 
The Paris Agreement um, of December 2015 on climate changes put finance, financial markets, at the heart of the, of the, of the whole issue. It comes at Article 2, I think, really upfront, which shows that uh, making, managing climate change, it's, so, it's, it's clearly also an issue of money, as you rightly put it at the beginning. And therefore, by developing and pursuing Pushing forward this agenda, we think we are fully in line with our uh, global uh, commitments. Um, basically, we see that the private sector is starting to develop uh, ideas, uh, uh, practices, uh, uh, solutions to help climate to uh, facing climate change challenges. And we, of course, are happy to encourage them. But, of course, as policymakers, we are also determined to play our part, to do our best to support these initiatives in the best way. We don't want to uh, be the first in the class, but certainly we want to help. And uh, at the moment, we see two big areas, two main avenues where we as policymakers, we can help doing the difference, making the difference. In, on the one hand, we have regulation. On the other hand, we have the use of public budget. Regulation, nobody really likes regulation, especially after 40 new uh, legislative initiatives uh, published and adopted in the last four, five, six years. So we don't like regulation as such. But sometimes we have to admit that changing regulation can help also loadable objectives. So we will see to what extent uh, part of the response is going to be there as well. Um, in order to be supported in this difficult exercise, uh, we have set up a high-level expert group, which is uh, working already very hard. They met today. And uh, we have distinguished members of this group uh, in this room, so I'm not going to spend a lot about it. But certainly, uh, without revealing any particular secret, because we are waiting for an interim report which will be delivered in June or July, sorry, July this year, and we are eagerly waiting for the final report, which is due for December this year, Without revealing any secret, I can tell you that we already see some areas where we could wonder whether adjustments to the current legislation could be helpful to achieving the objectives uh, that we are talking about. Well, it's just between us. I can give you the areas, fiduciary duties, of course, reporting and disclosure again, so transparency, standards, definitions, taxonomy, uh, benchmarking exercises, um, possibly capital requirements. I mean, but I mean, this is really uh, the speculation of someone like me who has looked at the issue, and we have no uh, uh, certainty whatsoever that this is the conclusion to, that the group will come to. Uh, certainly, we're going to look at the area of risks as well, but since Mark already spoke about it, uh, we don't need, I don't need to use uh, more of my five minutes to develop that. I'd rather talk a little bit about budgets, uh, on the other hand, because, of course, uh, using a public budget in order to incentivize the use of private resources is also another usual methodology which we are going to try to explore. Uh, not only the FC 
provides already for a 40% year-making on sustainable investments, but we're wondering whether this is used, known, enough, so we're going to think about it uh, uh, very closely. But also, I mean, uh, considering or envisaging uh, all the area, which is for some uh, taboo area of uh, fiscal incentives, is something that, uh, uh, of course, cannot be imposed, but certainly we, can, we have to look at jurisdictions where this has been done or is being done and see to what extent it can be, I wouldn't say imported necessarily, but made, made, made known uh, uh, on a wider scale. And... Uh, uh, to what extent this book could be considered as a source of inspiration, especially in order to incentivize the buy side, of course, also to produce uh, um, uh, environmental and socially friendly uh, products, let's call them like that, in a non-technical manner. So, in a way, uh, I, my, my preliminary remarks uh, are... Uh, focused on two main messages. On the one hand, the Commission is determined to do uh, its best in order to serve uh, this objective. On the other hand, there's no silver bullet, there's no uh, uh, magic, uh, uh, let's say, uh, recipe. Uh, there is a number of initiatives of various nature, of diff from different perspectives and different angles, which have to be looked at and considered, and which together could contribute to the objective. In a way, uh, we need a vision, a global vision. And we wouldn't go even further. I would say that uh, it's not just about making sure that money goes in the right, uh, uh, at the right destination. I think that we should be able to create the conditions for uh, re-engineering the whole financial system in a way which in the long term would become inherently sustainable. And this is something which requires also a change of culture. Uh, uh, so debates like this one as well are very welcome. I'm happy to see that they are <coughs> proliferating because the, 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 it, is, it is an issue which is attracting a lot of attention. And I think that every actor needs to play its role uh, we are ready to play our role, and I will stop here for my introductory remarks. Thank, no, thank you. you. Thank you. I'm sure people will be interested in understanding because, from your, I mean, the, the role that you play, you have both a convener, broker, stimulator role from where you're sitting, and quite influential in terms of being able to use public finance to motivate different things, but also politics you have behind you to a certain extent. And I think people will be interested in actually whether, when you speak about re-engineering the financial system given our experience in the past 10 years in terms of issues of lack of transparency. Um, I'm, I look forward to seeing how that might be possible. We'll come back to that. Ingrid, over to you. Um, you've got an interesting background. You've done a number of things, but you sit, you've been sitting at the heart of a market, um, have been, having been in a you know, boutique investment bank. From your perspective, are you seeing transition happening? It, it is happening more and more, mm -hmm. but not at the scale and pace that we need to see. So, um, I mean, the, the blurb to this meeting sets mm. out the significant investment gap, and I think we've got quite a lot of clarity on that, but the question is how do we close it, particularly around hard-to-deliver areas like energy efficiency, which remains an enduring challenge. So I'm going to say a few words of, from a perspective as a, of a 
high-level expert group on sustainable finance member about how we're thinking about this without breaking any confidences. And Martin in the audience is watching me, so I have to be very careful. Who's Martin? But Where are you? Put Martin your hand Goff. up, Martin. <laughs> ah, right. Okay. Brilliant... I will be coming to you to disclose all these secrets <laughs> that we keep on hearing about. Okay. He's our, on our very hard-working secretariat. No. <laughs> so uh, I think the first thing to say is uh, that we have a huge amount of ambition in the group. So the remit is to develop an overarching and comprehensive EU sustainable finance strategy. Um, so this is about delivering our 2030-2050 climate and energy targets, but the use of the term sustainable, not green, is important here because we want to go beyond that and talk about much broader challenges around um, sustainability. And the way we're thinking about this is um, finance as a tool to directly deliver infrastructure outcomes, which are going to be really important, but also thinking more broadly about the responsible investment agenda. So how can we use finance as a means to raise corporate standards across the board? So clearly disclosures is going to be really important in that. And it's no... Um, uh, non-coincidence that we've got three of the um, task force members on the high-level expert group to provide that continuity. Um, we think it's going to be important that the disclosures agenda to understand exactly where our gaps are around financing challenges, which is very difficult to see some of the time. Targeting um, public interventions can become more efficient that way, so using things like public budget, FC and so on, um, to, to accelerate closure of our financing gaps. But also, how do we deliver as orderly a transition as possible? So um, this is some of the challenges Statoil are facing. And disclosures can be very helpful there as a device to support the kind of conversations we need, both in corporate headquarters and, um, and among investors as well. So we've got all of that ambition, I'd say. Um, the second thing is there's a lot of integrity to the group. So what I mean by that is that the Commission has absolutely given us a blank sheet of paper to come up with a set of recommendations that we believe as a set of institutions and organisations are needed, and that's really important. So we are going to be talking about um, how we need to adapt current financial policy. There's lots of interlinkages with the Capital Markets Union and a lot of good joined up dialogue there but we're also going to look more broadly at the interface between financial markets and policy and government decision making and we'll have some clear recommendations both to the commission but to member state governments on how they can step up to close this gap because it's not all on the finance side so um i'm pretty excited about it i'd say um we will shortly i think be putting up a web page um, our chairman wants us not to be like a submarine, so popping up every time we publish something, but to be as open and engaged with um, the broad community around policy and finance as possible. The interim report um, in July will be accompanied with a stakeholder event, and we'd encourage people to attend and provide feedback um, you know, you will get a first sense of how we were thinking about these issues, but it will be, you know, then open <clears throat> for a dialogue. I think we won't be at a point of making a set of very clear and comprehensive recommendations, but what we will be able to put out on the table, hopefully, is some sense of what the options are for driving this agenda forward. There are a range of views. Um, do we use regulation? Do we use other means? 
um, soft, hard measures. So all of that will be out there. Um, and we'd be very much looking forward to your feedback on that. Thank you. I just hope that the... And it's good to hear about the integrity and ambition. I hope that that can be replicated in the context of the European Council and the politics that we're currently facing, because actually that's going to be the engine that drives a lot of this, but I'm sure people have questions about that. I hope it can be, given the state of affairs that we're in at the moment. I'm now going to move to an industry perspective, and um, I'm going to ask Anders Marvik. The recommendations of the task are, are not new to you, but I think people will be interested in how, what, how you view the issue of disclosure, but also um, the financial, financial choices and fin investment choices you're making as you move forward. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think... I mean, first of all, I think Statoil as a company, we actually welcome this initiative, this report. We've given some feedback already and we'll definitely engage going forward. Um, and also because we're actually doing it. We're already doing it. Mm. Um, so we're trying to, you know, take our lesson learned uh, and put it into the team. And I think, you know, the main message in all of that is probably, you know, focus on quality versus quantity. You know, the right information sufficient information is probably, you know, the, the, what to target and not necessarily all information. Because if you give all information, it's not informative and nobody can find anything. So, you know, but that balance between what's needed and, and what you can do at reasonable time and cost. But I think overall, we agree with it. I don't think we have in the kind of, in the overarching, you know, the executive summary, if you want. Yeah. It, you know, it's all fine. It's going the right direction and we're doing it. Um, so, I think what is Stanstattel doing in this area, both in terms of disclosure, obviously we're doing disclosure. We're also doing transparency. Um, I mean, when we're highly ranked on the CDP, there's a climate disclosure project ranking. We're at number one of the oil and gas companies and, and et cetera. So, so we're doing something. Um, but we also we just launched a, what we call a new low-carbon strategy, and I'll come back to that. Uh, we also have a new climate roadmap, and I'll come back to that. And if you want, there's a copy outside, so you can read all about it. It's not very long, so don't worry. Um, and I think we also do our energy perspectives, which our kind of scenarios in the future, kind of like the IEA scenarios going until 2030, what does the world look like? We have a two-degree scenario. We have a Paris scenario. And unfortunately, Paris is not the two-degree. Uh, and then we have what we call the rivalry scenario, which is more sanctions, conflicts, and unfortunately kind of the world we read about in the newspaper every day, which is very off both of those pathways into the future. Um, but we use that uh, to inform our strategy, to inform our decisions, even though in itself it's a standalone product. But interestingly, when we talk about stranded assets, disclosures, and all this, we actually use the IEA two degree, so what they call their 450 ppm scenario, and said, okay, if the world actually follows the policies embedded in achieving that, what will happen to the value of our company? Um, and we've just disclosed this in our sustainability report, which you can find on a, on a web page. And actually, if the world does that, the net present value of Stato will go up 6%. So again, it will give investors clarity. Then you can argue, is the IA model good enough for, you know, you can always argue about it, but I think it's a good stress test, and it's good to show that, look, no, we are on the right track, we are actually thinking about this, we're looking at this. And then, so physically, ex actually examples, what are we doing? So first of all, in the oil and gas space, and I'll come to the renewables uh, space, but if we don't, I mean, right now, oil and gas is, and coal is around 80% of the world energy mix. 
So if we don't do something about that 80%, we're definitely not going to reach any targets. So what do we do in that space? Well, we use a carbon price of $50 per ton in all investment decisions. That is a hurdle rate that every project must pass. Um, the emission, our own emission, when we produce oil and gas, is about half the world average. So very hard to, to achieve, but we are actually increasing those ambitions, and we're saying we're going to increase and reduce our CO2 emissions by another 3 million tons of CO2 by 2030, which is quite ambitious. Uh, we already store 23 million tons of CO2 in uh, our carbon capture and storage facilities. Um, and also when talking about costs and we talk about renewables and our renewables costs have gone down as well, but oil and gas is not standing still. Two years ago, our break-even on our future portfolio was $70 per barrel. In a $50 world, that is not a very nice place to be. So today, we have a break-even price of 27 so we totally re-engineered the whole portfolio. So that's a massive drop. So renewable changes, but oil and gas also changes. Then on renewables, and what we call it new energy solutions, because not just renewables. But on renewables, we're on track to deliver power to about 1 million European homes from offshore wind only. Um, we are about to, to install the world's first floating offshore wind farm outside Scotland. Um, and we have a capital venture fund of $200 million to invest in disruptive technologies, disruptive business models. Uh, and, but then on the, just to end on the funding, I think, you know, we alluded to it, but IEA says something like, if we're going to achieve two degree, we need to triple investments globally into clean energy. Uh, European Commission, in the impact assessment report of, for the 2030 targets, talks about we need annually investments of, and it's not the 400, so mm. <laughs> it is, including transport, it's a, basically 1,000 billion euro every year. 1,000 billion euro every year. That's a huge investment increase from where we are today. So, and where are we today? Well, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, currently clean energy investments are actually falling by around 18% globally for different reasons, both because of cost cut you know, et cetera, but, but still, we need to triple, at least, according to IEA. So we're not really on the right track. Why not? Is there not enough money? What's happening? And I think, you know, actually not. Our biggest problem going forward, I think, on our renewable investment will be there will not be sufficient projects available for us to bid on that are profitable. I think that is actually the biggest hurdle rate. And I think what European Investment Bank is also saying, we don't have enough profitable projects. So how do we change that? But I think if you have a profitable project, the money is there. Thank you. Kind of, it sounds a bit too good to be true, actually, um, but it's great. No, clearly, yeah. no, in terms of kind of leading the way and, and demonstrating what's possible. Um, and actually, kind of, it's a, a kind of nice leeway into uh, the conversation now. We're going to, not last but not least, but S&P Global Ratings. To, from, from my perspective, and I'm sure others, that actually you become the worm in the system that can actually change this agenda by your approach. But probably you've got a view on that. Sure. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to follow on very um, succinctly from where Anders left off and talk about what's needed to scale up the transition to a low-carbon economy. Um, because if, effectively, in our view, what you need to do is turbocharge the capital markets. 
Uh, and, you know, we, we've heard that you need to raise somewhere in the region of $1 trillion per annum to get to the point where you are financing sustainable development to meet the transition to two degrees by 2030. So one, $1 trillion per annum is a long way away from where we are now in terms of the labelled green finance market. You know, that's where most capital markets, which is labelled green, is actually uh, originating from so-called green bonds. Uh, we're seeing somewhere in a region of about $100 billion uh, uh, issued in green bonds last year. This year, there's some optimistic um, forecasts that we could reach $200 billion, but still a way away from the $1 trillion that's needed. Now, that sounds like a, a, a sizable challenge, but you have to bear in mind that in terms of the world's assets under management, the whole fixed income market, there's $93 trillion out there. And in terms of uh, the pr principles of responsible investment, the PRI, they have $62 trillion of assets under management. These are investors who want to invest in sustainable uh, uh, development. These you know, have a specific mandate to do so. So clearly, there is, a, there is the potential there for turbocharging the capital markets, for unleashing the monster, but we're not there yet. Um, next thing I would point out is that we need to tap into the infrastructure asset appetite that exists out there. We all hear all the time, I'm an infrastructure person, as well as doing environmental and climate risk research, I'm also the, uh, the research lead for infrastructure S&P Global. And I know uh, that the infrastructure is an asset class that investors are dying to get their hands on. Yes, there's a shortage of supply of investments, but at the same time, the appetite is there. And you have to bear in mind, and this has been said often, that there is uh, around 75% of all infrastructure has a connection to sustainable development. And unless you solve uh, for infrastructure, you won't solve for green finance. And that's been said by many people, including the chairman of the International Capital Markets Association. So, you know, just to my, my sort of last point, I suppose the most important point, how do you do that? How do you unleash the monster? How do you turbocharge the capital markets? Well, one way of doing that is to actually demonstrate what the value of green is. What's the value of sustainable finance? And, you know, this is not just about risk and reward. This is about green and reward. So it's the same way that S&P Global, we've heard investors come to us for many years and saying, how, how risky is my bond? You know, what's the credit rating of my bond? What's the credit worthiness? We're now hearing investors saying, how green is my bond? You know, how environmentally beneficial are my investments? Uh, irrespective of what the credit risk is. They want to know what the environmental credentials are. And why is that? Well, there's a number of reasons. First and foremost, there's a new era post-Paris of regulatory compliance and legislation coming in, which is forcing the issue. And many people point to what's going on in France with Article 173, the Energy Transition Law. That's asking questions from institutional investors. How are you transitioning through your investments to the low-carbon economy? And that means that there's a value of green just by that legislation being in place. You know, we heard about the PRI and $62 trillion of assets under management looking for a home. There's a value of green there. And, of course, we've also heard from Mark about the TCFD. I'm also a member of the TCFD, and that's so clear. Well, once you demonstrate through enhanced disclosures for climate-related risk what your risks are related to climate, then obviously there's, there's value there in investments in green because you can show how resilient you are or what opportunities there are. 
So there's compliance from regulation. That's one reason. Secondly, there's a whole issue of retail demand. We know that there's more and more investment funds with a responsible investment mandate out there. There is demand for these products, and that means there's a value to green as well. And finally, many of these funds have got decarbonisation pledges that they've made, either at Paris or beyond. Again, to meet those pledges, there's a value of green. So the value of green means, effectively, that there is a, a, a premium which investors should, and I stress the word should, be willing to pay to buy green. Uh, but, and this is important, but at the moment we're not seeing that. We're not seeing much evidence of investors willing to pay up for green. And at the same time, on the other side of the fence, that acts as a deterrent or a disincentive for issuers to go to the green bond market. And that needs to be fixed. One way that can be fixed is by enhancing price discovery. So if investors are not seeing the value of green at the moment, why is that? Because they're not sure what green is. You know, it's not just a question of whether you're green or not green. Uh, it's beyond that. It's also how green you are. You know, what benefit are you providing to the environment? How are you contributing to the systemic decarbonisation of the economy through the investments that you're making? And that's what S&P Global is focused on right now. Tomorrow, in fact, we're launching a green evaluation service, which focuses primarily on how green is your investment. We look at the transparency in governance, which many investors are also interested in. They want to make sure that they're not being greenwashed uh, because they don't want to, this market to basically lead to them having investments which are in stranded assets, for example. But at the same time, they, they want more than that. They want to know more than just you know, how transparent and how you know, related to clear governance their investment are. They want to know what contribution they're making because that's going to be of value to them, as I've demonstrated. So having some form of relative ranking to allow price discovery will allow greater liquidity in the market, increase secondary trading. Again, that's price discovery as well. That will lead to a much bigger investor base. Remember, there's $93 trillion of assets under management. And finally, that all leads to what we believe will be the scaling up that's required and basically, you know, turbocharging the capital markets to transition to a low-carbon economy. Um, excuse the noise next door. This, this, this was so sold out. That's the overflow room, so they're really kicking up a fuss because they can't get in here. Um, but we'll, 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 cut, we'll quieten them down. Um, we... Do excuse me. Um, we, we also, as a, as a, before I open up to you and uh, engage you directly with, with some of the issues that have been raised, at Friends of Europe, we have a debating platform uh, called Debating Europe where we regularly canvass and engage the views of people and citizens, over 2.2 million uh, every month. And this, this agenda is, is quite significant on the minds of citizens and people. And we have, I just want to quote three people. We have Sunny from Croatia who says, the best way to pay for a green economy is to show investors they can make a good return on investment. It's as simple as that. Robin from Romania says, how much would it cost Europe not to move to a low-carbon economy? We should, factor that cost it, we should factor that cost into our calculations. And finally, Luigi from Italy says, it's not about investing in low-carbon technologies. It's also about discouraging investment in fossil fuels. So how can we do that? So those are the views from citizens out there and people out there. Tell me, give me your reactions to what you've heard so far and some of the issues that, that have been um, unleashed upon you. But, you know, there's obviously accountability, pricing, um, and how we move towards a low-carbon economy. Gentlemen here. And can I, again, we've just got just under half an hour. No speeches, questions directly. Say who you are and who your question is directed to, because I'm not going to give the panel uh, one question to address across them. Thank you. Uh, I think if you lock the door, it'll be better for me. 
Um, <laughs> No, I, I have a, a, a million questions for everyone, but I think I'll focus on... Who are you? Uh, Sorry? Jacopo Mocher of Ocean Energy Europe. I think I'll focus on uh, STATO. Um, when our 2030 objectives um, in Europe lack ambition, and they can be achieved with a bit of, a bit of uh, wind, offshore, onshore, and some solar. When we look at 2050, mm. that's a very ambitious objective, and that will require a new technologies coming in, the disruptive technologies you're talking about. The problem we have today is these technologies are out there. We know that they can work. Well, obviously, ocean energy would be one of them. Deep geothermal would be another, and, and so forth. When we launched ourselves into wind energy, the technology risk was actually taken by the investor, which were the utilities, off balance sheet. Today, we're not in that world anymore because of what Mark was saying. Consequently, people who do have projects which could be viable in terms of developing these second-generation technologies can't find the financing for level money. So all this discussion here that we're having about how the green bonds, et cetera, are like three steps away from where they actually are, which is to say, I just need a few million, but I can't get them. So um, as the people who have money today are risk averse, and there is a lot of money out there, and we all agree, but they are risk averse, how do we plow that into? Um, I, think, I think you kind of asked that question yourself. Um, how, do we, how do we change that? How do we make these, these, um, these projects which are disruptive profitable to bring in the private uh, investor. I have an idea on that, but I'd like to, to hear your views. Okay, okay. And perhaps you can share your idea to, with us later on. And not right now. Let, let the gentleman answer, and then we'll come back to you. Yeah, I think uh, the... Um, on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, no, thanks. I think the... I mean, you're right. I mean, a lot of things are going to have to happen on the innovation front and new technology front, um, which is why we're putting a lot of money now into carbon capture storage. We're, putting in, we're thinking about how do we deal with then hydrogen and blue hydrogen and green hydrogen, you know, you know, there's a lot of different things like that. But I think we're also spending a lot of money on innovation itself. So out of our innovation budgets going forward, we're spending something like, from 2020 onwards, 25% of all R&D has to go into new energy um, to deliver on our 2030 targets. <laughs> we need to start in 2020. Um, I think, but then also for, from kind of your point of view, I mean, I think probably the most interesting things of what, what companies like us are doing is then this capital venture fund which we have established. So we have a $200 million capital venture fund. We were investing in uh, leasing of windmills to businesses in the US, uh, a new solar film in the UK. I mean, we're doing a lot of very specific, very early investments into smaller companies, exactly like the one you're talking about. So I think that is one way. And of course... But is that because you've got the infrastructure to go... Because there's something about proximity. Because two or three million is not a lot in, in, in the bigger, bigger picture, right? But you'd be able, you need to be able to get to that and have the infrastructure to reach and identify that kind of innovation to yeah, a certain so, extent. Yes, yeah, so I think kind of from our point of view, we are going to develop renewable projects that are huge, big, of scale, as that oil. But we see okay. that there is that pocket which we can't reach, we don't reach. Uh, but we have to scale and the credit rating to, to have okay. those kind of funds. Uh, and we do those two, three, four, five million dollar investments in, okay. in exactly those kind of things. Can I, you go, is there a role for the commissioner? You talked about you know, using public finance. And is this the area that, you know, in terms of using the leverage that you have through the variety of funds available to you to actually stimulate but also reach into the thicket of good yep. R&D and innovation? Certainly, as I said before, the FC could play a role here. Um, putting money at the service of this. Uh, but, I mean, the, the problem is exactly what the, uh, our... Uh, uh, the, uh, what's your name, sorry, again? 
Jacopo, uh, Jacopo asked. There is a lot of money out there. The problem is that they are not willing, uh, uh, I mean, not everyone is ready and willing of the investors, mm. institutional investors, is willing all the time to invest directly into uh, 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 products which are more expensive because they are green. That's, I mean, I'm talking about the issue of uh, green bonds, which is, of course, the most, uh, the most known. I hear some investors saying, for example, uh, I, uh, I decided at the end not to invest in this because they were too expensive. So the issue is more or less where to put the cursor, and it goes back to what you were saying before. What is green? What is not green? How green it is? What's the value? Of being green, and was if you comp if you put the same if you apply the same reasoning to projects and infrastructure is the same thing. What is the what is the return which I have in terms of money on one end, but also in terms of image, if I pay more in order to get a product which is uh, in, in in you know which is recognized and officially recognized. That's why we were thinking of uh, definitions, benchmarks, uh, taxonomy, things like that, <clears throat> aims at uh, clarifying, first of all, to start from that. What is green? What is not green? How green it is? Uh, how, how, uh, is, it, is it a good green or is it simply a, um, a fake green? So these are, this is this okay. is the role where the policymakers can... Uh, uh, get that this that, but also I think that isn't... A Innovation and, and, and uh, prototyping costs. And it's just from my perspective that there's something about how you leverage public finance to be able to make the first, be the first step, uh, step uh, funder, potentially, um, in this space. But we can come back to that. You're, you're desperate to come in, but very briefly, because I've, I've got other people that you've all had words, so I want to bring the audience in. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing we haven't brought up yet, which is the most obvious answer to the questions that you're... Um uh, questioners on the platform are raising is mm. is carbon pricing you know that's we led the world in this you know we had the first carbon emissions trading scheme in the world there is a very uh, good initiative underway at the moment uh, uh, in the trilogue discussions to reform the ETS to mm -hmm. tighten the market again mm -hmm. if we had carbon prices yeah. of 30 euros a 10 you'd already be accelerating uh, the move away that is clearly the single most it's the closest thing to the cliched silver bullet, bullet that we keep hearing about, that people say it doesn't exist. Actually, it almost does. You know, if you put Macron, who's just uh, won the first round in the French election, he wants a hundred, he wants a hundred euro a ton carbon price by 2030. And if if you develop a trajectory that investors think is credible as a policymaker, you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling pro prophecy because people then make investments on that basis of the public sector in, in leading some of this. Um, I will come back to you. Possibly later, because I know you're itching to kind of respond to that. But the lady there with the glasses. Again, say who you are and direct your question to Thank Ravon. you very much. I'm Linda van Goor. I'm an independent uh, professional, especially in financial legislation. I hear a lot about investors, and that's all understandable, but I would like to talk about banks. Uh, Europe's economy is for 60% financed uh, by banks, some 30 trillion of the 50 trillion regulated assets and the management uh, in Europe. So, and most citizens and most companies do not have access to capital markets. They, are, they only have a relationship with the bank. So if we want to go to greening our societies, if we want to go to greening our economies, we'll have to do it through banks. 
actually, it is very easy to adapt risk management criteria such that businesses become sustainable, Indeed. Um, that investments become green. And there's a group of banks who have been doing that since the 1970s oil crises, the values-based banks. They have been applying that. The banking rules currently are, of course, based on the Basel framework. Yeah. But my but can question I ask you to is, move to your question, though, please? In, yeah. uh, question to Ingrid and yes. to Ugo. Uh, what is your view on the role of banks, and how do you plan to adapt the banking legislation to sustainable finance? Good question. Ingrid, is that going to be one of your recommendations coming uh, up from the report? Bank, banks are definitely going to come up in one way or another. <laughs> Indeed. And I would say there are banks and there are banks. So um, SCB <laughs> is doing this already. They've completely changed their governance and, and mode of doing business to be a green bank issuing green bonds. And clearly we'd like to see more of that. But if you look at most of the banking activity, it is around mortgages. And I think one of the challenges we have with the low-carbon uh, infrastructure agenda is the numbers are so huge. This is beyond the balance sheets of the banks or the companies to do alone. And that was a lot, I understand, uh, of why the Capital Markets Union initiative came about. It was about connecting that capital into deliver, amongst other things, our infrastructure priorities. So I think banks will have an important role to play. They're probably more going to be involved in um, construction, particularly earlier stage um, technologies. They're very good at managing risk. But at the end of the day, we should be seeing more of the type of investment emerging, um, such as the partnerships we've seen with uh, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, which is a uh, investment arm of Pension Denmark, who've been working directly with Dong Energy on offshore wind projects. So we'll see a co-evolution, ideally, of the energy sector business model and the um, uh, capital markets investment model so that we see more of these kind of partnerships. So banks are in there. They're definitely going to be in our report. But I think a lot of this work is about opening up new opportunities through public fund structures, um, tweaks to regulation, what, whatever we need to do. You good? Do you want to add any more to that? Okay. All right. Any more from this side? We've had a couple of questions from here. Excellent gentleman there. Don't be shy. Put your hands up. Yes, thank you. I am Louis-Victor Brille from European Commission, Director General for Research and Innovation. Two years ago, in 2015, a report was issued by World Health Organization making an estimate of the damage created by the burning of fossil fuels. This damage was evaluated at 900 billion per year, uh, 400,000 deaths in only European Union. This was confirmed by a report last year of um, a European in a, um, Environment Agency. So my question here is, this damage is paid for by someone. What would be your reaction on using, know, this is very schematic, but how to find a way to spend this money not on um, countering the damages, but on financing the evacuation of these causes, it means uh, transition to low carbon economy. Who, who would you like to direct that question to? Um, to Mark and, and uh, Ingrid. Mark? Uh, I'm not sure I fully understood the question, to be honest. 
What you're saying is that basically, how do, how do you, in terms of generating the costs that you do through the damage, it's, using that for financing? Um, I, I, well, I mean, I, I support capital. the principle. I mean, I support the principle, but I, I think the tricky thing is calculating what the right amount is. I mean, there was this. I'm not familiar with that report, but there was this other report by the IMF, I think last year or the year before, where they estimated fossil fuel subsidies at five trillion dollars per year when you take into account the health impact. So. You know, the IEA says that the annual subsidies on fossil fuels are about 500 billion. That's the opportunity cost in economic terms of the subsidies. But when you factor in the health damage that is done by fossil fuels on top, they get to 5 trillion. So, I mean, that was a very controversial number that was put out there. Um, I mean, I think anybody looking at the, uh, the numbers are very big, whatever it is. And I think we can all support uh, the principle that polluters pays and there should be um, you should be uh, using these proceeds uh, in, in, in an environmentally uh, positive way. I think the tricky thing is figuring out the number. And I think it, it's, it, it, is, it does become much simpler if you just put higher carbon prices. You remove subsidies. You remove actual direct incentives to burn fossil fuels, which we still have far too many of, including here in Europe. And you put a carbon price on top as well. And that way you ensure... Uh, that, the, that the polluter pays in any case. I think that's the easiest way of dealing with this problem. Then you don't get into tremendously detailed uh, calculations where there's a lot of scope for uh, disagreement. Ingrid? Perspective on this at all? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's completely logical what you're saying, but politics isn't logical, is it? So no. we're talking about reconciling the imperative of the present with the needs of the future. And... Um, you know, why aren't we doing this in a sensible way, investing for the future? It's mainly because of jobs and disruption, and we've got to have a story about how we manage that. And I would say things are changing. So if you look just at the energy sector, the amount of power they have in the discussion, I mean energy utilities now, um, that, that power is much less than they had five or ten years ago. So we can have a more rational discussion um, but we need to be able to paint a picture of how we do this differently and make it feasible for politicians actually to deliver. And that's one of the reasons I'm quite hopeful about a high-level expert group. I'm sure that quite a lot of what we say about real economy changes will not really be that new because we've known the answers for a really long time. Mm. But I think what will be interesting is who is saying it at what time. And the, for me, the narrative that we present around our work, what will essentially be an offer from the financial sector to politicians who want to deliver a whole load of investment and jobs and growth and all the rest of it and a better future. You know, we will be hopefully saying this is how you can do it. This is how financial markets can step up with these changes, but we need you to meet us halfway. And that infrastructure pipeline, the broad project pipeline, is going to be absolutely key. Thank you. Do you, yeah. Just add a quick word. So I think it's all about tipping points. And, you know, we, we heard from Mark about the, the cost of renewable energy technology coming down dramatically over the past few years. And the reason why that's happened is because they've been supported uh, through various support mechanisms or subsidies to the point where they have a reached economy of scale. Uh, and that's allowed them to, to come down in price. And now they don't need the same level of support. Uh, when we're looking about trying to incentivize other 
types of investments to move away from fossil fuels and towards low-carbon uh, technology and low-carbon investments. We need other tipping points to be uh, factored in, and these are driven mainly by policy, whether it's uh, the carbon price incentive, whether it's uh, supporting new technologies, disruptive technologies such as storage, whatever it may be, they need to have support, and there needs to be the right policy regulatory framework in place until it gets to the point where these uh, technologies have reached scale and then you've, you've achieved that tipping point and then the, you know, the investment flows in afterwards. Thank you. We have just under 10 minutes, so we've got, I'm going to take the lady there and there's a lady at the back, was there? A, yes, and then the gentleman here. Again, who, you, who are you and then your direct question. Hi, Céline Charveria, I'm the Executive Director of the Institute for European Environmental Policy. Uh, one sector that's not been mentioned <clears throat> is uh, the agriculture and land use sector, mm -hmm. though it's an increasing source of both emissions but also great potential for carbon removal. So my question goes to Ingrid whether the EU uh, high-level group on sustainable finance will start thinking about how you exactly shift the trillions in that sector, which is very different from the sectors we've mentioned so far. Yeah, thank you. Good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, and the lady at the back, then, then I'll, I'll hand over to some, one of our speakers. Hello, thanks. It's Femke de Jong from Carbon Market Watch and NGO here in Brussels. Um, I had a question for uh, primarily Mark Lewis based on his comment on carbon pricing being the silver bullet. And I guess I would add to that that's in theory. Uh, because in practice, we see still a very low carbon price. And even with the reform proposal under negotiation uh, about the EU emissions trading system, prices might go up to 20 euros in the year 2030. But that's still a long way uh, ahead of us. So what would be your recommendations how we can make carbon pricing a silver bullet um, in the EU? Or would it be up to national governments to, to take it a step further? And whilst you've got the floor, do you have a view? Yes, I'm, of course. I'm not turning the table deliberately, but I'm, you know, given what you do, given the position you have, what's your view, very briefly? And then Mark can come back on that. Well, first of all, I think we would say that ideally the, the solution to this problem needs to come uh, uh, at the EU level. Uh, ideally, you would have a carbon floor price racing, uh, with a rising uh, a price uh, where you need to be in 2030. This is a very tricky debate, though, especially uh, given that the European Commission does not uh, support this approach. So you think the public sector should take the lead? I mean, the European Commission should take the lead in this? Yes. Okay. Uh, but if that doesn't happen, it's up to each, each national uh, government, of course. Of course. Okay. Right. Um, first question that we had. So let me, let me start with that, Mark, and, and, and in terms of response, and then we'll move to the question about agriculture and how do you shift and include agriculture? Um, yeah, well, I, I don't disagree with the premise of the question. I think you do need to have a greater degree of predictability. And, uh, you know, the Commission, until the introduction of the Market Stability Reserve, the Commission was very opposed to any form of uh, interference with supply. I mean, we had this backloaded allowance. We had the backloaded allowances. That didn't do the trick. We've had the introduction, or we will have the introduction of the Market Stability Reserve. So I think, I think the, the position of the public authorities is evolving mm. as they see that prices are not getting us to where we need to get to. Um, we're not at where we need to be uh, under the Paris Agreement to get to two degrees, so you do need uh, significantly higher carbon prices. I think, actually, once you got uh, higher carbon prices, you would probably find that you don't need to get 
to 100 euros a ton by 2030. I mean, I think this is the whole point of the genius of a market, is as prices go higher, you find that you can do things that weren't economic before. And I think one thing we haven't talked about either is once we get big breakthroughs on energy storage, mm. that will make so much of this much easier. And I think, again, just to, to kind of finish on, on a note of optimism, if you look at how fast... Uh, the costs of renewables have come down in the last 10 years, even in the last five years. Um, and you think there hasn't really been an incentive uh, until now to invest heavily in storage because what was the point when renewables themselves were so expensive? Mm -hmm. It would have been a subsidy on a subsidy. Sure. Now you're going to get a lot more money invested in this. I suspect we will find that storage, uh, there are breakthroughs much more quickly than we currently expect and that in another 10 years' time by 2025, with the help of a higher carbon price, um, we will we will be in a in a very different different place. But okay. you definitely need a higher carbon price to get there. The easiest yeah. way of, a floor price is a good idea. Taking more of the supply out, you need some kind of supply side management. It's as simple as that. But who does it? Um, really? Um, you wanted to come in yeah. briefly on this point. Yeah, sure, quickly. Um, I think the two issues here. One is the this li the link between kind of CO two emissions and then air quality, which are linked but also very different. But that means when it comes to health when it comes to all kind of issues. But I think on, when it comes to the, to the carbon price, I think, you know, there's a lot of good, whether it's carbon floor, carbon tax, uh, you know, there's all kind of technicalities you can do to make the price go up. But the, pro the problem is not the technicalities. The problem is there's no political will to do it. And as long as there's no political will, we can suggest emission performance standards, we can suggest all kind of things, but without the political will, it's not going to happen. But, but I agree with you, we need it. I mean, we are, in Norway, we actually have a CO2 tax of 70 euro per tonne. You know, it works. Yeah. Might not like it, but tax works. <laughs> you, know, and, you know, and we're assuming 50. It's interesting that you're saying no. that from industry. No, but, you <laughs> tax know, works, absolutely. Yeah, of course it does. Let's note that. Staterol says tax works. No, I'm only joking, I'm joking. Um, agriculture. Um, so I'm going to uh, do a fudging it answer. Which oh, is, no, um, that's a pity. But I'm going to try and give an answer. So we have got a lot... Because you've got so much ambition and integrity, you we can't fudge. We have got ambition and integrity, and we have agreed to go beyond climate and energy. Climate energy as a set of challenges relatively well articulated. We have begun to explore other aspects of environmental challenges. Um, and my sense is from the kind of structure way in which we're thinking about this is actually once we work through climate and energy we will have a framework in which we can slot a set of recommendations applicable in other sectors so I'm hopeful we will be able to get to these sets of issues they're clearly really important and one final thing one of the high level expert group people is advising Macron and I think that if he wins the election we might actually have a real chance around the common agricultural policy Thank you. All bets on Macron. Gentlemen here. Carl Falkenberg, Senior Advisor to the Commission. Um, I, I thought that there was a lot of optimism coming, coming forward, but uh, when, when I look at the, uh, the reality, uh, green bonds in the financial sector is like uh, bioproducts in a market. We're talking, <laughs> we're talking single digits. Mm. And we know that we, we, we need to get much, much higher. Um, we've heard about regulator and political will, and uh, my question goes a little bit in that direction. I'll change it a little bit and ask how much uh, on a global issue like climate change can Europe do alone in this? How far can Europe push the financial sector to move more in a green direction without 
the rest of the world doing likewise. If people rush to invest in Aramco, in what is clearly a stranded asset, um, how can we make sure that in Europe we go into future solid, sustainable investment? And how do we remain, remain competitive in doing that? Mm, very, very good question. Um, let's end on that one, actually. Uh, unless there's anyone desperate for a, a last question from the audience. Yeah, let, let, let me ask each of you to actually address that. So let's start with, uh, like, like with you, Mike, Michael, in terms of S&P Global's perspective. Because as I said, you, 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 as a ratings agency, you have a huge um, responsibility, but also opportunity to be a game changer in this. Yeah, it's, it's all about leadership, really. And, um, you know, you, you could argue, and I, I certainly would argue, that Europe, in many respects, has been a leader, uh, whether it's in climate policy, whether it's in carbon trading or carbon pricing, um, or whether it's in, you know, just general policy for incentivizing sustainable development. Uh, you know, Europe has been a leader. But, you know, I'll go back to the power of the capital markets. The capital markets are international. Uh, mm -hmm. but, you know, they, they, don't, they don't respect frontiers. Uh, there's there's cross-border trading, uh, there's cross-border, uh, um, you know, basically lifting of ideas from one region to the other. Wherever there's efficiency, it will quickly uh, move around the capital markets. And we've seen this happen in, you know, in the green finance space. Uh, the growth of the green bond market in Europe, you know, originating from countries like France, Netherlands, the Nordic region, Germany... That's been spotted in the U.S., and in the U.S. now we've seen increasingly number of, of, of utilities and other corporate issuers uh, issuing green bonds. And we've also seen the growth in adaptation bonds uh, amongst U.S. municipalities, you know, financing um, investments to strengthen and make their infrastructure more resilient. So that's, that's another thing which I think you know, shows how ideas can move across frontiers. And, you know, again, if, if we see how the developing markets like in China and so on, we've seen development in the, the growth of the speed of, of green finance in China. Again, taking the lead uh, from Europe and, and pushing hard to grow quicker and scaling up. So I think the leadership that Europe has shown in this space has translated and has transcended frontiers, and I think it will continue to do so, assuming that Europe remains the leader. Yes, indeed, by the end of this year, let's see. Um, Hugo. It is clearly very important that Europe moves together with other jurisdictions, at least the most, uh, let's say, uh, let me call them like this, the most developed ones. And I think that there is a, uh, an effort, a, com a constant effort, to try and, uh, let's say, um, coordinate at global level the efforts that we are doing. Just as an example, uh, last week, or yeah, it was last week or a couple of weeks ago, the issue of sustainable finance was addressed at the G20 in Baden-Baden. And uh, this, uh, this is uh, uh, at least uh, an element which shows that the same issues are debated at global level. And, uh, for example, all the, all the efforts which have been made by the um, FSB uh, in order to produce, uh, we didn't have the time to talk about it, um, the guidelines on, 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 on transparency. Uh, these, are, these are all uh, exercises which take place at global level and where hopefully the Europe will, will maintain its role as leader. We know that China is doing also a lot on, on this, but uh, also they have a, also a, a little bit of, 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 of way uh, to, to cover. So um, 
in a way, it is very important that uh, um, we continue to coordinate our efforts at global level. Since I have the floor, I will just add one uh, general comment that uh, um, I want to add to the debate uh, what can be done, what should be done, taxation, for example, as an example of the possible um, silver bullets. I think that we have to be realistic also on what Europe can done as Europe. Because there are, uh, of course, we have a competence, but uh, you know, in the area of taxation, uh, depending on how a possible measure will be designed, uh, there is a need for unanimity. Uh, there, is, uh, there are a number of things which uh, are uh, interesting to look at, but which uh, uh, sometimes personally I consider uh, as um, really, really excessively ambitious. And I think that uh, we should choose between ambition and, uh, let's say, feasibility sometimes. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, uh, uh, we, we, we miss opportunities, I think. So very important to be ambitious, but at the same time, uh, we need also to be realistic. And sometimes some measures can only, be like the one which was mentioned uh, by Macron, if he wins the elections, are measures which could only be envisageable at national level and which will never, believe me, find their way at the EU level. No, exactly. That's, that's part of the dilemma at the EU, isn't it? That actually, you know, everyone thinks a common taxation policy might be great, but my goodness, you'd be 100 before you'd get there. But however, let's, let's, let's move on. Um, your perspective, I mean, in terms of green bonds, how do you move them from a niche boutique market to something which is sexy, investable, and much more of size and scale? Is that something that you will look at? Um, I, I find these number conversations make me a bit grumpy mm. because the world isn't just about green bonds. It's less <laughs> than 1% of the global bond market, and actually there's a hell of a lot more happening that isn't labelled as such. Um, right. So... Um, I would just say a few comments. One is that it's much more than about the numbers. It's about the soft power that the EU has had. It has lost some leadership. So if you look at the um, per capita investment in renewables in China, it's overtaken that in Europe now, and that's very concerning. But I think we've got a real opportunity now with this high-level expert group to get back on the front foot. And indeed, that was one of the kind of real drivers, I think, for this group being set up was an acknowledgement that Europe had kind of fallen behind countries like China on the green finance agenda. So hopefully it will get us back in the game. Um, the falling costs of clean energy are to our advantage. And as we're starting to discover, there are a lot of structural reasons why um, we, can't be, we can't connect capital to projects. So I think there are significant opportunities. Um, and I think the other thing is investors are really behind it. The, low the persistent low interest rate environment is a major, major worry. So we've got motivated investors in a way we've not, not had before. So everything to play for. And green bonds are interesting, but they're only one part of a much bigger story. Okay. Mark. Yeah, I mean, Final competitiveness is, response, is, yeah. is a problem, but I, I think we're getting to a point now where competitiveness, the competitiveness problem is moving in the favourable direction at the risk of sounding optimistic again, um, in the sense that if you look at the United States, um, many corporations in the United States are urging the current administration not to renege on its commitments under Paris because they think it will do economic damage, not necessarily because they think this is a... Uh, 
you know, they have uh, anything on, on climate change per se. This is becoming an economic argument. Uh, Ingrid mentioned China. The other panelists mentioned China. China's moving forward uh, later this year or the beginning of next year with a nationwide carbon trading system. Carbon trading in Mexico is going to start in 2018. There's interesting stuff going on in Canada. You look at the carbon price in Europe, it's much lower at the moment than it is in, in California and in some of these other jurisdictions. So I think we really do need to get back on the front foot as Ingrid uh, said, and I think this is, a, this is a fantastic opportunity with the high-level expert group. Okay. There's a lot on your shoulders, and I might ask, is Martin still there? Yes, I might come back to you. No, I'm only joking. Um, last but not least, I mean, you've already demonstrated the fact that you see the economic benefits of financing the carbon economy and moving in that direction, but what's your view in terms of the, the, the question that's been posed about Europe versus, and, view, and the world? Yeah, I think, for me, I mean, it's you know, Europe has been in the lead and Europe has done a lot of good stuff. And I think Europe will continue to do so. But of course, this, I mean, climate change is a global problem with global solutions only. I think it's great that China's in the lead. They need to be in the lead. If they are not in the lead, mm. it doesn't matter what we do Absolutely. in Europe. I mean, the, the last statistical update from Chinese emissions, their calculation error was bigger than the entire European emission. Indeed. You know, so I think, I mean, China you know, India needs to be in the lead. Needs Indonesia needs to be in the lead. So I, I don't think that's a problem. I think it's fantastic. Mm. Um, on sustainability, I think, you know, green bonds or not, I think it is a niche, and I think it will probably meant to be a niche for quite a while. But again, that's not really the issue. I think the issue is, you know, running any kind of industry or company, whether it's that oil or agricultural, no matter what you're doing, you have to run it sustainable. And that has to become mainstream. So, so in a way, green bonds may be a niche and maybe an issue right now, but I think any kind of investment, any mm. kind of financing, any kind of industry has to become sustainable. And that is it. You know, so there's no you know, green bonds that's going to solve it all. Sure, sure, sure. Absolutely. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to all of you. Colleagues, time's up. And um, I hope that we've... Um, enabled you to think and connect the dots around the financing a low-carbon economy and debate and scrape the surface of some of the issues and, uh, I suppose, think about the kind of changes in behaviour and policy that we need to put into place as we move towards a greater transition, a better transition to a low-carbon low economy. Um, that's enough from me. We want to invite you to join us for cocktail uh, drinks just outside, uh, uh, literally across the way, um, so you can make as much noise as our noisy neighbours next door. But... Um, let me, let's take an opportunity just to thank our very good panel of speakers. Thank you very much for your time and engagement. Thank you all.